Our sermon this morning comes from Daniel chapter 1. I'll be reading a portion of that chapter, verses 8 through 16. Now hear the word of, the, of God together. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave David favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youth who are your own age? So he would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let them be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let the appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat at the king's table be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine, and they were, they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word still speaks to us and guides us. And so we ask that you would now clarify your love and clarify your sovereignty, that we might know you more clearly and might love you more deeply. We pray that you would lead us and guide us now by your spirit and what you have given us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was... 597 B.C., and there was chaos in the lives of God's people. Their land had been ransacked. An enemy nation had taken over them violently. Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful ruler of Babylon, had besieged or surrounded with the intent of toppling Jerusalem, Judah's capital. There was no rescue in sight, but only slavery that would be in the midst of God's people. The Lord gave Jehonikim king of Judah, in Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Valuables and even vessels from the house of God, the temple, were pillaged. But it gets even worse than this. Beginning in our own book, in Daniel chapter 1, our text for this morning, the, the severity of displacement comes not only from gold and glory being swiped from Babylon, but also being captured includes the very best and brightest young men in Judah. This abrupt Israel, or this abrupt action, Israel actually had this coming for itself because for a long time, we would see in 2 Kings 23 through 24, this shows that for decades, Judah was in decline. The fog that had been creeping over this territory that the king who this people group had been ignoring caused a covering where the mercy that had once held it up, this fog had vanish now before Judah. Now Daniel is a book about kings and kingdoms. And it starts by an awful kingdom 
conquering a good kingdom. And this will be a theme that we'll see again and again throughout this small book where kings rise up and kingdoms rise up and then kings fall or they're stripped and kingdoms fall and are stripped. Things could not be worse for the Lord's army. We see right at the beginning of this incredible tale, the era when Jerusalem functioned as a geopolitical powerhouse is now completely over. Her best, her most valuable, and even her finest men have been hauled off into exile. But chapter 1 tells us something in particular, and actually it tells us something incredibly inspiring. Not only should we read it because it's the very Word of God meant for our own instruction and building up, but in this case, it's the very Word of God meant for our to keep as an example. By the Spirit of God, Daniel writes this chapter to comfort God's people with the message that their sovereign Lord will guide His people through the world and will encourage them to be faithful to God. That's what chapter 1 is going to teach us this morning, that the sovereign Lord will guide His faithful people through the world and encourage them to be faithful to God. Now the book of Daniel asks one question over and over again. Is it worth it to remain faithful to God under a king and kingdom who rejects Him? Is it worth it to fight for God's glory in the midst of a world that only wants to bring the glory of the Lord down? Is it worth it maybe to, seem the re, maybe to see the repeated action of our testimony in Scripture to fight against the serpent who seems to be crushing the seed of the woman? In the Hebrew Bible, Daniel is placed in a section of books recounting Israel's history, the the portion of books called the history section of your Bible. But in your English Bibles, it's in the section of the prophets. You see there, it's kind of in between different prophetic texts that speak to us. This isn't surprising because Daniel is rather unique in that the first half of Daniel is a history of Israel during this time. And then the second half of Daniel is a rather prophetic or apocalyptic genre that speaks to what it looks like when the Son of Man will come for His bride. Chapters 1 through 6 are historical narrative. Lots of looking around highlighting an Israelite named Daniel who was forced to serve a king in exile. Chapters 7 through 12, on the other hand, in many ways they they look up. So the attention of the reader is no longer around the things around him, but up in the sky where through a series of visions or through a series of what we will call apocalyptic literature, this takes the reader 2,600 years ago, but even to us today, to days beyond Daniel's own imagination, to the coming kingdom of God, where the Son of Man will appear in glory, but with retaliating intensity against those kingdoms who were fighting against him. The book of Daniel has 12 chapters, and I'll be preaching through most of this book chapter by chapter, saving the, the last three chapters all in one swoop. I'll be, I'll be preaching this way mostly because what we'll see naturally is this is how the author wrote the book. Now, later on in history, chapter numbers were added and verse numbers were added, but we can look at textual things that actually identify that chapter one stops at the end of chapter one just from a literary standpoint. So the reason why I'm preaching all of chapter 1 today is you might look at the very beginning of chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, in the third year. And then at the very beginning of chapter 2, it starts in the second year. 
So what we see are barriers that help us decide, or, or one way that I like to put it is there are literary bookshelves that we know when something starts and when something finishes. Now, I am not against taking the book of Daniel and taking it chunk by chunk or section by section. I think you'd be wise to do that, maybe your own personal Bible study. I'm sure some of you have done this in Sunday school classes or different devotionals. I think that's great because some of these things that we're going to see, you could spend a lifetime examining. In fact, next week when we talk about the Son of Man, like thousands and thousands of books have been written on that particular chapter. And I'm going to conquer it all in one amazing 35-minute sermon. (laughs) So we're going to take this chapter by chapter because that's how this book, I think, has been presented to us. So with that, I've titled my sermon, God Gives, here in chapter 1. Because this chapter shows us drama, Daniel, his friends, a eunuch, a king. But all of these things are in play by the will and sovereign desire of God. And God in chapter 1 is a giving God to his people. So let's see what he gives to his people. First, God gave them a worsening condition. Or God gave them worsening conditions. We see this in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. This may seem obvious, but Daniel's life is worth watching. In fact, many of you might have heard the slogan, dare to be Daniel. He's one of the few people in the Bible besides Jesus who you could look at and point to to your kids and say, live like Daniel lives. Be like Daniel. Do what Daniel does. But first we see that God gave him and his nation, his people, his friends, into worsening conditions. They found themselves in a foreign land, in slavery in many ways. Now, Daniel's living in Babylon, but you should see how he lives there. That's one of the things that we can identify with in this chapter, is we can not only look at Daniel as a person, but we can see how Daniel starts to operate around different people in exile. To be in exile means that you are carried off to a Babylon, meaning that you were under In many ways, God's own judgment. You are isolated from God's presence and God's goodness, and you are now under the authority of a bad, bad man. And in this case, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. This is how 2 Kings and Lamentations considers Babylon. But Babylon is a bad place. But remember, the ungodly desire for the people who built the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, that's the Babylon we're talking about, or the Babylon that in the last book of the Bible becomes the term for speaking of God's judgment. That's the Babylon we're talking about. So you might remember in the verses of Revelation 14, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink of wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Or Babylon is portrayed as a dark or negative theme, not only in this case, but in other parts of the Bible, we see in Psalm 137, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. This is where Daniel finds himself. We look at the cute little drawings, or maybe the super book cartoons of Daniel standing proudly in the midst of lions, or as friends confidently in the midst of an oven, but remember, they are in the midst of emotional torment and physical torture. But, with that being the case, Daniel shows his time in Babylon as something a little bit different than we might see him, or we might see Babylon portrayed in other parts of the Bible. 
This informs our reading of of this particular book. We see Babylon, and if we were to give one word to it, we would say, Babylon, bad. But here we see that Daniel portrays it not different, but just a little bit slanted. To get this, look at Babylon through the lens of the prophet Jeremiah. So if you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 25. I'll be reading the first seven verses there. And as you're going there, the, the prophet Jeremiah sent words in the form of a letter to the exiles in Babylon. This section of Scripture tells that the negative perspective of Babylon is right, but not complete. So when you read the Bible, this text should determine your theology of what is happening in Daniel. Now, I think too many people, they have a theology, and then they press it on different books of the Bible, rather than first reading what the Bible says, and then allowing that to speak to how we can interpret it, or how we can theologize it, or how we might systematically take this doctrine. So here what we see in this text is a prophetic message against Babylon and Jeremiah. And this has, I think, led many to miss the rareness of God's plan for Babylon during the 70-year reign of Daniel's exile. Because we remember what the Scriptures say about Babylon in total, Babylon is a very bad place. So why, if God is good, would He place Daniel in the midst of something that He will later declare as horrible and will receive His whole wrath? Jeremiah argues that for the 70-year period that Daniel lived in Babylon, God intended bright lights of hope to be showing in dark times. I hope even with this, you can start to see the important application or the immediate application that we can take away from this book. For generations and generations that I've been alive, people have talked about how fallen the world is, yet we are still here. So how are we to live in the midst of Babylon? Jeremiah 29 verse 1 says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and prophets of all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now look to verse 5. What are they to do? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into the exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. This last line is important for us to grasp when we aim to understand the teaching of Daniel. God wants prayers made on behalf of Babylon because God's people are there. Because God intends to provide welfare of His own people while in exile. So interpreting Scripture with Scripture shapes our view of Daniel. We see Daniel in many ways in the midst of hell, but God intends it for good and his own glory. You'll see in the first several verses of Daniel 1 that God gives Daniel worsening conditions. But how was Daniel supposed to live in this really tough time? He was supposed to be faithful. He was supposed to be on mission. He was supposed to be standing first for the glory of God to seek the welfare of the city, pray for the Lord on its behalf so that God's people would be built up in the midst of the world being torn down. This changes how you and I live every day of our lives, doesn't it? It changes how we think about corrupt governments or scary schools 
or unwelcoming friends, or maybe even dark and deplete neighborhoods. God sees evil, but he places his own people in the midst of that evil. Both we see in 2 Peter to bring those people to himself, but also to show his own glory to what will soon burn. Daniel lacks the negative language about God's plan towards Babylon. This book shows that God intends to do more than merely judge an ungodly nation. Instead, he offers a saving word to those under his wrath. That's why Daniel is there, to proclaim and stand for the true king. There's common grace that Daniel will continually have towards Babylon to proclaim the true king. When we think of scriptures as a whole, God actually does this all the time. He saves all kinds of people from the point of misery, but not only situational misery or circumstantial misery, but our own hearts. If you're new to Christianity, maybe this is your New Year's resolution where you wanted to come to church this morning, the one thing that we've confidently and boldly boast is that we are not good on our own. Not just that we live in a weird part of town or my weird uncle that I met at Christmas actually makes my family look even weirder than I thought before, but me on my own, outside of family, outside of surroundings, outside of my neighborhood, or outside of my friends, I'm incomplete. The Bible calls this sin or separation where there's actually an evil tendency in my heart to not bring glory to God or to worship God, but rather to worship myself or to build up false idols around me. And what the Bible clearly tells us, non-Christians, is that if we continue to live like this, if we continue to just try to feed off of our own sinful ambition, then it will not be good for our lives. It'll be like Babylon's. But God actually provided for us a rescuer. God actually provided for us a Messiah who was perfect in every way, who was good in every way. And he says that if you believe in Jesus, this Messiah, and if you confess with your mouth and believe in a heart that he is the king, that he is the Lord, then you will be saved. You and all of your sin, you will be saved because he will stamp out that sin and will make you new. This idea of a longing Messiah is what the book of Daniel is pointing us towards. Now, we look at this through the lens of the cross and we see little things here and there over the next several months that will be like, that is like a clear image of the gospel. But remember, they knew who they were and they knew what they needed. So if you find yourself outside of Christ, we would just tell you that Jesus is who you need. Nothing else. And you can place your trust in him. You can depend on him like you would depend on a bridge. Or you could depend on him like you would depend on an umbrella on a runny day, on a rainy day. You can depend on him fully because just look around and just be honest with yourself. Can you really depend on anything? We would say that Jesus, the Son of God, the delivered Lamb, the delivered Messiah is the one who you can really believe in and trust. So Daniel is here to stand fast to this one true King There's common grace that we see towards Babylon. The king will crush an evil kingdom and establish his own glorious kingdom we see towards the end. Now with this, the narrative unfolds in the first couple of verses where Babylon is the backdrop. We see the narrative begin in verse 1 where Nebuchadnezzar captures Judah, carts off money and prestigious men to his own palace, and they'll be indoctrinated with Babylonian principles. In verses 3 and 4, you see the kind of men the king captures. They were royal. They were noble, they were attractive, they were wise, smart, good students, 
and able to stand in hiding places. There, though, they'd be retaught. They'd be re-educated. They'd be put into subtle concentration camps with the ways of the pagans. And in this, they were given the king's food and the king's wine, and they, would to be, they were to be renamed. The positive spin on this is that they were given some really neat things. You have to look at this from the perspective of the Babylonians. We just took people and conquered them, but we gave them really good food. We gave them really good wine. They even got to live in the palace. But negatively, these people were stripped of their own identity. Once holding Jewish names, they now have names dedicated to Babylonian gods and idols. Daniel, now Belshazzar. Hananiah, now Shadrach. Mishael, now Meshach. And Azariah, now Abednego. God gave these men and others worsening conditions. And so how were they to live? Well, we see this continuing on. We're second. That God not only gave them worsening conditions, but God also gave them or drew them back to worship and gave them firmness. God gave them worship and firmness. We see this in verses 18 through 16. I I really think there, in the midst of uh, verse 7 and verse 8, that there's this depressing tension. We don't know how much time has passed between these two verses. But I think the the meaning of verse 7 and how it leads into verse 8, this is where the drama starts to climb and the tension starts to grow very strong. These brilliant, sought-after men were just truly humiliated. Before this time, Daniel and his friends would have been trained in the Scriptures. They would have been schooled in proper worship. And them being called wise indicates that they, even at a young age, would have navigated the waters of good and evil brilliantly. They were godly men, grounded in the truths of God's Word. But now, the education that they were force-fed would have been similar to Hindu teachings of today, where there was a God of this and a God of that. There was no sense of grace or mercy or love, but only of fear and slavery. There's no hope that they would be re-educated in. Most notably, like has been said before, they got new names, each of which was religiously significant. Daniel means, God is my judge. But Nebuchadnezzar, well, this is calling on the God of Bel to protect him. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. But Shadrach, this signifies the command of the moon god. Mishael means there is no god like the God of Israel. Cool name that you would give to a kid, right? But Meshach, there is no god like Maku, the Babylonian god. Azariah, Yahweh has helped, is now Abednego, a servant of Nebo, another god. This would be like you having a lot of pride and naming your son Joshua. The Lord saves. And then the son is captured, and he's renamed something like Muhammad. Think of what this would do in understanding your identity. You're taken away from your home. You're taken away from your heritage. You're taken out of your own culture. But not only that, you're not even recognizable by your own name. These men were enshrined with pagan names. No longer are they identified to the world as children of the one triune God. Now they serve Nebuchadnezzar, adorned in Babylonian namesake. And this is where verse 8 picks up. This didn't change their desire to worship. This didn't change their 
their desire to worship the one true God with all of their lives. The narrative now takes a turn and a quick one. The tension, though, keeps building. So, though spiritually and probably emotionally they would be crushed, they were here resolved, the text says. They were resolved that they would not be defiled by what? Food and drink. Now, you might think, who cares? I've had a good steak. I've had a good glass of wine. Why not just go for it? It tastes good. It drinks. It nourishes everything. There are two reasons why Daniel would refuse this. First is many of these foods eaten at the Babylonian court would have been unclean according to the Mosaic law. In uh, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, this would have been done either naturally because these were bad foods or because they were not properly prepared. To eat like this would have been a sin in these men's minds. It would have been a shearing effect on their own conscience. They know that they would be disobeying God by just eating these food and drinking these drinks. So rename me, sure. Take me out of my home, okay. But make me eat that? I don't know if I can do that. Second, the meat and wine would have been unwanted because it was first offered sacrificially to the Babylonian gods before being sent to the king. It was associated with idolatrous worship. Although wine was not, forbidden, was not forbidden by Jewish law, Daniel's aversion to drinking it is probably explained by its own use and offering to pagans gods. Now, you and I might have a nativity scene in our Christmas setting at home. But what if that nativity scene was used from wood that had previously been used to offer a sacrifice to Satan? Would you want that in your home? I mean, just emotionally, no. That would totally creep me out, no. I'd set it on fire somewhere in a field somewhere. Usually the ashes and grow a tree and print the Bible on it, right? But here we have the case where something is forbidden. And out of Daniel's obedience, he says, I can't do this. Daniel's refusal to eat the king's food was based upon his deep spiritual convictions and understanding of the scriptures. He wanted to be pure more than anything else. And being wise and understanding that God had not abandoned him nor put him into Babylon in vain, We see in verse 8 that he approached the chief eunuch and requested a different diet. So with Daniel being obedient to Scripture's divine commands, God blesses with tremendous insight and a heart that desired holiness. But the eunuch couldn't just let Daniel off the hook. He He has a master too, doesn't he? He can't just say, well, that sounds good. He has to take it up the chain of command. He needs to make sure that he doesn't get in trouble. He had a higher boss. And so we see in verse 9, where God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. So Daniel asked for a trial run. He said, give me 10 days, me and my three friends, where we'll just eat vegetables and drink water for 10 days and then compare us to the other youths that you have in front of you. And amazingly, the king's servant listened to Daniel. And for 10 days, a testing occurred. Now I'm going to let this sit because I think this is actually the climax of the passage here. I think this is the point, the tipping point, that if it goes one way, it can mean one thing, or the other, it can mean something totally different altogether. Imagine what would have happened if this went bad. Would Daniel be sent off into an isolation chamber? Maybe beaten? Or worse, even killed? They've stripped him of so much, but at least, remember, at least he's being cared for. He's being given food and drink. He has a bedroom. He's amongst his friends. It's not totally terrible. What if it goes bad, though? But also, what if it goes great? Would they see Daniel as mocking the Babylonian kingdom? Would they beat him anyway? 
Of course, only drinking water and eating vegetables will make you look better. We probably all tried that for half a day on January 1st, right? But the king wanted to lure them into his favor. If they show they don't need the king, won't he retaliate against them? If they prove themselves to not need the king's food or the king's drink, wouldn't that show that they're actually rebels of the king's ways? So Daniel and the other three here were determined to worship God as God desired to be worshipped. And yeah, that's easy to nod your head out and say, me too, but remember the extreme pressure that they were under. Society for them had changed. They were given other ways to worship, and it would have been easy for them to just not worship God as He demanded. It's just a plate of dinner or a glass, but they were given firmness and resolve. They had a high view of what it meant to worship God. And they were dead certain that they didn't want to live in any other way than a God-glorifying one. They had godly ambition. Changing names was okay. Studying in a secular school, that's fine. Taking their lives away from proper worship of God, though, that was not going to satisfy them. Their moralities simply would not allow it. And so Daniel resolved to pursue holiness rather than ease. And the result of this? Well, verse 15 tells us that the answer of this pressure was that it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than any of the youths who ate the king's food. And amazingly, Daniel and his friends were permitted to do what they had determined to do to avoid the defiled food from the king's table. So God gave them worsening conditions. But he also gave them directive worship and firmness in the midst of those circumstances. And lastly, we'll see in our text that God gave them two things, two remaining things, wisdom and favor. What happens next is the resolving action of this incredible short story that just brilliantly kickstarts this whole book. What started out as an intense circumstance for a few Israelites led to show their firmness and trusting God. It led to their tenacity to worship only the Lord with not just part of their lives, not just their Sunday morning worship, but all of their lives, all of their literal lives. They believe the text of the Scriptures to be profitable, valuable, and worth following even to the point of their own death. This is where you and I should look at these characters and seek to live like they live and mostly to love God like they loved God. They had such a fear and high reverence of the Lord even to the point of having courage to go and ask, can we have something else? Their internal belief showed itself by their outward devotion. Tremendous trust. And in the rest of the passage, we see how the Lord gives them favor. We see that the Lord gives them favor in several ways. He gave them favor by empowering them to pass the test so that they might continue to live purely. He gave them favor in that He increased their learning and skill with literature. In the midst of seemingly shriveling up by only eating vegetables, their minds grew sharp and strong. But he also showed them favor by providing them favor with the king himself. Not just the eunuchs, maybe not even other prisoners or other Babylonians, but with the very king himself. Now one thing I want to point out very carefully here is that I want you to notice that a secular education in Babylon was not something to be feared by God's people here. And the point is, wherever God would have Daniel live, 
whether in Judah or Babylon. Daniel was, was resolved to live purely and to speak truthfully. Most likely not worried about what he was forced to learn in the classroom, God gave him wisdom to discern what is right and what is wrong, even to the point where he could speak before the king and convince him with the truth that God had put before him. It's striking that God's word describes the content of these young Israelites' Babylonian education as wisdom. Not just knowledge, but wisdom. Wisdom is a genre of literature that goes way, way back to the Egyptian and uh, Macedonian ages where it finds its voice in the Christian life through books like Job or Song of Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Wisdom literature was written for an audience who would be serving the king. So if you at any point in your life was going to serve someone of nobility, whether you're a secretary for the president or a very prince himself, you better be wise in the midst of that court. And so they had pieces of wisdom literature that you would consume. And for us, we would want to wisely serve the king in the same way. To grow in our wisdom and understanding of not only who the Lord is, but how we can live in a way that gives proper honor and glory to his name. Daniel gets training in the same kind of wisdom literature that trained leaders have steeped themselves in for centuries. We should not be afraid to join them. If you're serious about being a follower of Christ, you would be one who is committed to keeping yourself clean in this world, but also your resolution would not only be of purity, but to purity that does not retreat. Purity that understands. Purity that goes forward. Purity that fights back while in exile. Right now, all of us are called to live here. If you ever wonder what God's will is for you right now, well, right now it's to be in this very room. And if you have a home to go to later this afternoon, it's God's will for you to be in that home. If you are married, guess what? You want to know if you married the right person? You did, because you're married to them. You've got kids, it's the Lord's will for you to have those kids. You have parents, it's the Lord's will for you to have those parents. Here we see that while in exile, we are called to live, each one of us, with a pursuit towards purity, away from evil, fighting for what is true, fighting for what is noble, and standing for what is holy. And we see that example even in a person like Daniel. God gives wisdom to Daniel and the three others, but also gives them something else. And this would give us tremendous confidence in our own lives. He gives them favor in the mind of the king. They not only found favor with God by him giving them wisdom, but also favor with the king. So as a result of their purity, these uncompromising men wound up being most useful in a horrible situation. When their training was over, we see in verses 18 and 19, it was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah who were summoned to stand before the king. And in every matter, it says there, in quotes, every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Their resolve and God-giving talents were rewarded. So this pushes us way forward. Now think with me here. Much later in the story of God's people, Jesus of Nazareth would come on the scene as the fulfillment of all that Daniel and his friends typified. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40 through verse 52, it tells us that Jesus found favor with both God and man by being who he is. In Luke chapter 2, verse 47, when he was still a child... 
his teachers were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You could even say that he knew ten times as much as anyone else. The instruction for us and the application for us is, to be, is, that person, is to be that person of godly resolve who lives in accordance with God's will and is actually seeing the one who was the most useful to the world. And sometimes the world recognizes this. And when we do, we follow him. You'll be tempted to think that pursuing godliness will give you less influence and be less important. We think that we will be marginalized as Christians, but this story from Daniel's life demonstrates that in following God, we can actually become more useful. Maybe not in the ways that the world deems useful, but certainly in the ways that God calls His kingdom to be established. We might just find favor with God and man at the same time. So in conclusion, though not very briefly, What are we to make of this account of the fall of Israel's king and kingdom? Like I've said before, hidden in our text are the subtle but powerful praises, phrases, and the Lord gave. This anchors Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 and provides the point of view that the writer wants us to know that by the Spirit of God, Daniel writes this to comfort God's people with the message that their sovereign Lord will guide His faithful people through the world and will encourage them to be faithful. The Lord gave. Christian, remind yourself of this. He wants them to know that when catastrophe struck Judah's king and kingdom, it was God and not Nebuchadnezzar who was, the ultimately, who was ultimately the one moving the wheel of history to accomplish His eternal ends. The Lord gave a sentiment of comfort to bolster readers who find themselves waiting for the arrival of God's promises. And the Lord gave a balm in the midst of disturbing surroundings. And the Lord gave when everything seems lost and when life seems not worth living, God was yet working out His will. And He does so even on matters as big events unfolding on the world stage like Daniel 1 and even in cases like in your own life that no one even knows about. He removes kings and sets up kingdoms. And that is true even in our own day. The Lord gave this realm into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But even when His people are in exile, God continues to be involved with them. God gave Daniel favor in the palace in the midst of his own master. And God gave him knowledge and skill. And God guides and protects and saves his own people by actually entering into history. Not just overseeing history, but the Lord gives us grace by entering into history and giving them not what they deserve, but what they need, even while they are in exile. In the fullness of time, our scriptures say, God gave the most precious of all gifts. God gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but have everlasting life. Matthew 1 highlights this progression of redemptive history for us, seeing God as not only sovereign over all things, but particularly caring for His people in all ways. Matthew 1 shows us the history by depicting 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 is the Hebrew number of the name David. 
14 from David to exile, and 14 from exile to Jesus Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportations to Babylon, here we are, are 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations, it says in Matthew 1, verse 17. Jesus is another king, but Jesus is the true and better king of David. Jesus is the king that the Lord would set up in the midst, in the promised coming kingdom that God shows Daniel in our text. He is the Messiah, king born to save God's people from their exile in a word world and to restore them to the promised land. And in his high priestly prayer, we see that this king, Jesus himself, says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. They do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. We see in John chapter 17. Today, God's people on earth still live in exile. We are, brilliantly, as C.S. Lewis says, we are east of Eden. We may call ourselves citizens of one country or another, but really, Paul says it correctly, where our citizenship is in heaven. We are just living in the midst of an embassy of this majestic kingdom. Jesus will come again and will bring us from exile in this sinful, evil world to the promised land that is the perfect kingdom of God here on earth. God will give this. God promises that he will give. God gives testimony to what he will give by showing us what he has given. Again and again, he says that the Lord gave. Knowing this is what both calls us and equips us to make similar commitments to remain morally and religiously pure in a pagan world. Knowing that God gave should instill confidence in us as we engage with our friends in school or our coworkers in jobs or even in our wider communities. Do you believe in these important words God gave? Do they settle you? Do they bring you peace and rest that knowing in the midst of Babylon the Lord was not done with Daniel and he is not done with you? These four words, and the Lord gave, have comforted their first hearers 2,600 years ago and they can and should bring comfort to us today too. And the Lord gave. Let's pray together.